You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. That's me. I'm Kyla Lee. (laughs) Um, Today, we are having a very interesting discussion with Caitlin Perrin of YYC Criminal Defense uh, in Calgary. She is an expert resource and authority on uh, Alberta's administrative license suspension system. And you will be amazed, shocked, and awed at the hoops that people in Alberta have to jump through if they are facing an driving charge just to have the privilege of driving while their court case is going on. Uh, Caitlin's also going to talk to us about the issues with respect to curative discharges being removed from the criminal code following the passage of Bill C-46 and uh, shares her insight into how that negatively impacts people in Alberta. It's a fascinating discussion, and if you are in Alberta and uh, have an impaired driving case or in Alberta and are worried about getting an impaired driving charge, or if you are uh, somebody who travels to Alberta and drives in Alberta, all of this could impact you. So it's definitely worth listening and educating yourself. So without further ado, here is Caitlin Perrin. Thank you, Caitlin Perrin, for joining me on the podcast. How are you doing today? So far, so good. Good. All right. I wanted to have you on to talk about Alberta's administrative suspension system for impaired driving, um, because it's something that I think you deal with frequently. Is that fair? Yeah, it's probably about 50% of the work that I do in the office is just going through the files and seeing if it's worthwhile proceeding with the appeals or just kind of looking at what options are available to each of our clients. Okay. And so, I mean, the listeners to this podcast, I think, have a pretty good understanding of what our British Columbia system looks like. Do you want to give like a bit of an explanation of how the administrative suspensions work in Alberta? Sure. So in Alberta, once you're charged with an impaired relating offense, or sorry, an impaired related offense, whether it's for alcohol or for drugs, um, when you're released from police custody, they almost always give you a notice of suspension, um, which is basically the Alberta Administrative License Suspension form. Once you're served with that form, you are immediately suspended from driving or operating a motor vehicle in Alberta for a period of 90 days. And that 90-day period, there's no exceptions. You can't go in and ask for conditions. It doesn't matter about your job or your career or anything like that. And then after the 90 days, you get a further 12-month suspension, but you have the option of getting a blow box so that you can still operate a motor vehicle for that 12-month period. Okay. And does that make a difference, like whether it's alcohol or drugs? It doesn't. So if you're impaired by alcohol or drug or a combination of both, you get the exact same form and the exact same requirements are in place. So the logic that was, I use the term logic loosely, (laughs) that was applied to that process is most people who are consuming marijuana or other types of drugs that would cause them to be impaired are most likely also consuming alcohol. So they just put the interlock or they have the interlock requirement for everybody who has those charges. Do you know, like, did they rely on any studies that showed like an increased risk of of alcohol impaired driving if the person is charged or convicted of cannabis impaired driving? Or is this just something they made up? It really seems like something they made up. I remember going through the answer, just like the notes from the legislation about what they're saying. And I think they loosely reference studies, but they they reference them by saying, you know, studies have shown. They haven't cited anything that you can go look up and read through right. um, that I've seen. 
I think generally they just say that alcohol is kind of like a gateway intoxicant that leads to drugs and carries on up, which I don't think really applies to a lot of people, but I think it's their way of dealing with just no loopholes. Everyone's stuck with the same situation and it's kind of a money grab because it just makes everybody rent this machine and pay their dues. And is there like for the interlock in um, Alberta, is there a like, like a contract? Is it one place or can you get it from any interlock service provider? So in Alberta, there's an interlock service provider that's called Smart Start. And so they've got a number of locations across the province. So when you send in your application for an interlock device, an ignition interlock device, they will, if they approve it, they send it back to you with a stamp on it that says approved. And then they basically give you some options for where you can call to go get the device installed. And do you have to go there to put it in? You do. And so it's actually really weird. The process is you have to go to the registry and purchase the ignition interlock form. You can file it up to 30 days before you're eligible for the interlock so that there's a processing time. Once your application is processed, they'll send it back to you. And then they'll say, okay, you're approved. Go get the blue box installed. Then you have to take the device or you have to take your vehicle if it's if you're the registered owner or you and the registered owner have to take the other vehicle to wherever the location is, get the device installed, take your vehicle home, take proof to the registry that you've actually installed the device, and then you can make an application for a restricted operator's license. <laughs> and once all of that, so it's just, it's ridiculous. It's really, really difficult, particularly for people who don't live in a city center or an urban center, because they've got to get to a registry. They don't have a driver's license. Then they have to go get their vehicle. They can't drive their vehicle, so they definitely need help. They have to take it to wherever the, the uh, facility is that can install the blow box. And then they have to take the vehicle back and then they have to get to the registry and then they have to go through another application process for their restricted license. And there's fees with every single step of this. Do you have to prove you have it in your vehicle before you get the restricted license? It's not like you just get a license with a condition on it and then get charged if you breach that condition with some provincial traffic offense. No. So like once the device is installed, the people who've installed it will sign a portion of your ignition interlock application confirming that it's been installed. And you need to take that with you to the registry to actually get your um, restricted license. Oh, my God. And you said you have to pay for every stage of this process? Every stage. So the initial application, $63 plus registry fee. So the registries in Alberta are independently owned and operated. So, for example, there's some places that charge like $9, there's some places that charge $25. It's definitely something that you should shop around for. So, it's $63 plus whatever the registry fee is. And then, to apply for your restricted operator's license is $22. There's a $200 reinstatement fee. It's $145 to get the device installed. And then, it's $95 a month to rent it from SmartStart. Is there, like, can you apply if you're low income or you lost your job because of your 90-day prohibition? Can you apply for, like, a waiver of the fees? We've never seen anything like that. It's basically if you can't pay for it, then you just don't get registry services. Wow. And even though the registry is providing a government service. Yeah. So even if you go to the registry now, if you have an operator's license and you go to the registry and want any sort of service, if they see that you've got outstanding tickets or outstanding fees... They literally will not give you any registry services, which are technically government services, until you've paid up all your fines. Right. And then they charge you registry fees for making you pay those fines? Yes. So if you pay your (laughs) fees at the registry, there's a certain percentage on top of it. And a lot of registries have actually also started not accepting 
uh, credit card or debit card without a premium on that as well. So essentially, unless you're taking cash, and nobody's going to take cash for eight hundred dollars for the traffic ticket, but then they'll charge you. I think it's like two percent at the one that's closest to our office. That's. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. That boggles my mind that to access a, a government service provided through a company that has some type of contract with the government, you have to pay for the benefit of, of being able to access the service. I, I think it's a really interesting process as well. I, and like, I grew up with it. I'm from here, so I, I'm used to it. But like, the more I go to the registry, I, I mean, I went there to deal with just insuring my car and I realized that I'd had a ticket and I'd moved, so I didn't know about it. And I was like, hey, well, it's my last day. I need to get my car registered or, um, yeah, registered before it expired. And they were just like, well, this is your ticket and we're going to charge you this much unless you want to get to the courthouse. I'm like, well, it's 4.30, so I can't really get to the courthouse. They're done. So I guess I'm just going to have to pay you these fees. So it's getting more frustrating. I think when I was like younger and I was just happy to be driving and have a license, <laughs> I didn't pay attention. But now I'm like, this is ridiculous. Wow. It like, I don't know, from we don't pay for registry services. You can go to Service BC and you can, or, or a driver services center, and you can get the services there. There might be fees associated with filing applications, but there's not a separate registry fee on top of that. So I'm yeah. shocked that they get away with that and that that's constitutionally valid. So I think that's kind of how they have it set up in Alberta, because I think in, in BC it's centralized. It's all government operated. But like everything in Alberta, it's a highly conservative province. Uh, basically, everything is decentralized. So if you want to open a registry, you do have to go through a process and you have to be able to provide certain services to be classified as a registry. But then there's a fee that can be tacked on top of each one. So even if you go purchase to start the administrative license suspension appeal, if you choose to appeal the suspension, the um, application form itself is $125. But we've had clients come in and they've paid anywhere from 130 to 150 dollars, and it just really depends on what the registry fees are tacked on top of it. Wow! <clears throat> and like I've handled a couple ALS suspensions when I get the odd Alberta file, and every time I've discovered that they require the person to go in person. Like you can't send an agent to go to the registry and purchase the form on your behalf. Your lawyer can't go do it for you. No, your lawyer can't go do it. Your family member can't even go do it. And it's interesting because at this point you don't have your license, so they can't really even confirm who you are. You have to go there and say that you're the person and you want it for yourself. What's the rationale behind not letting someone have an authorized representative do that for them? You know, I honestly don't know. I think it might come down to them just being very paranoid about privacy concerns. So like, even if I walk in there with a piece of paper that's allegedly signed by this person, I mean, I get the impression that they don't really care that I'm a member of the law society. They don't think that puts me at a different like level of responsibility than Joe Blow walking in there. But I, like, I, that's the only rationale I can think of, because I have tried when we first started doing these types of appeals, because the registry was literally a block down from our office, I'd just walk there and be like, I just want to purchase this form. And they'd be like, no, because we don't know who you are. And you can show them your Law Society ID or whatever. And their rules, hard and fast, if you want any services from the registry, you have to be, it has to be you in person if you're purchasing any sort of forms. Wow. <laughs> it's really every, aggressive. Every time I hear about how things work in other provinces, I'm always glad that I live here, which, you know, is different from my norm when I'm not glad <laughs> about our system yeah. here. So, okay, so you, you said you have to purchase this form. Is there a deadline in which you have to purchase the form? 
Yeah, so you actually have to purchase the form and have it submitted within 30 days. And they are super anal about that. So we've had clients who just realized the 30 days are coming up. They go purchase the form. So the, the form purchased on like day 29. But because they bring it or they wait a day, they bring it in to us. And if we send it in even one day late to so the Transportation Safety Board, doesn't get it until the 31st day. Even if it's due to a simple error or postage or whatever, they just refuse to hear your appeal. They say that they have no jurisdiction and you've missed your 30-day deadline. Are there applications for <clears throat> extensions of the 30-day deadline? Like if somebody was in custody or if they were injured in an accident and not capable of attending a registry because they were in a coma or whatever? So I haven't seen anybody make an application for those reasons. I've done a lot of um, research and reading on the cases where people are, there's either just been a, like a clerical error, so they counted the 30 days wrong, or pure later didn't come pick up their package, things like that. And basically what the board has said is there's nothing in the legislation that allows us to give you an extension, so we can't. Wow. And it's just like, it's such a cop-out. It truly is, especially for people, because there's some decisions where like, they, they've given the form to their counsel, but due to just accounting error or whatever, counsel didn't send it in until like the morning of the 31st day. And even then they're like, well, life's rough for everybody. <laughs> it's very, it, it, there's just no wiggle room at all with it. I mean, even the arguments that you can advance with these appeals, they are very limited compared to what you can normally advance in terms of a defense or particularly with respect to charter, charter cases because they're not judges, they're just members of the board, which means they could just be lay people. They're not lawyers. They don't have any experience in this area. They'll recognize a charter breach. And it might be a charter breach that any criminal judge would be like, clearly evidence is being excluded. And they really have a hindsight perspective, really, most notably with respect to right to counsel, where they're like, well, eventually you talk to somebody, we don't really care if it's the person you wanted. So even if it's an egregious breach, we had an officer who was could hear, clearly hear what was going on in the phone room because he identified that the person was speaking in a different language and he thought that that was a complete waste of time and forced this person to speak to an English lawyer from the legal aid line. What? And the Transportation Safety Board was like, that's a breach, but we don't think it was that bad. He just wanted to make sure he got advice. And so then they wouldn't give this guy a remedy. And then the Crown turned around and stayed the charges like weeks before trial because they read the file and were like, there's no way. Yeah, this is gonna pass. <laughs> even like with the most uh, most <clears throat> conservative judge in the most conservative courthouse in the country. I mean, that's just that's insane. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> when so I got so I did that appeal, and when I got the decision back, and I read through, I was like, I if this isn't a breach that's worthy of some sort of exclusion, I don't know what you're possibly considering as egregious. Like he's breaching every single element of this person's right to counsel. And they acknowledge a breach. It's just not egregious. So what, uh, like in your experience, what types of breaches would result in a finding of egregiousness that would lead to the evidence not being considered? So the ones that we've had the most success on are issues dealing with excessive delay. So we have some pretty decent um, appeal court decisions dealing with particularly forthwith. So like when you do the demand and when you administer the approved screening device. And if you can identify significant delays in those areas, we've had a lot of success. And ironically, with right to counsel, there's a lot of success as well, if they don't speak to somebody. So if the rights are breached such that you got like an invalid waiver, maybe not an informed waiver, and so they never talked to legal aid, they didn't really get to talk to any sort of lawyer, then they find that breach really egregious. 
But as I was saying about the hindsight, like even if you breach the right to counsel of choice or you don't tell them about their rights at the right time or you don't give them resources, as soon as that person's contacted legal aid and there's any confirmation that they received some sort of advice from somebody, it just makes the breach less egregious to them. Okay. In my experience. Now, um, you mentioned that it's a board. So is your hearing in front of one member of the board or is it multiple members? So each panel consists of three individuals, whether you do an in-person hearing or whether you do a written hearing. And um, the only the only real difference is, is the written one, you just get to send in submissions, the registry responds, you can reply if there's something new and exciting in that response. And then eventually they'll book a, a meeting where three of them sit down and they try to go through as many as they can in a day because it is pretty busy. Um, and then if you do the in-person one, then you actually go before three three individuals. And so it's, and you'll make uh, oral arguments to them. So it's actually in person. You can see them, and you're in a room with them. Yep. Yeah, so you're in a room with them, and they're like their chair is raised up on a little bit of a pedestal. <laughs> and then there's always um, they say it's counsel for the registry. They never really make any submissions beyond what's in their written submissions. They just kind of hang out beside you and take notes on any evidence your client gives or anything like that. And then you can make submissions to the board. Now, those oral hearings, are they held in courtrooms or what, like, what locations do they take place in? So I've never done any in Edmonton. In Calgary, they're at just a little office way down in the south end and you go up to the third floor and they escort you into this little room. So it's just the Transportation Safety Board office. Is there like a sheriff or some type of security personnel there? Nope. There's nothing there. You just walk in just like you would if you were going to drop off your application form. That's fascinating to me because in BC, our oral hearings for administrative prohibitions are done over the phone um, because the adjudicators say they have safety concerns that they might be um, they might be you know attacked or injured or some harm might befall them if they were to hear submissions in person. What? Yeah, they, from you, average people who want to get their license back. Like these people aren't thugs. Yeah, I know. And like, I, and half the time, people who are represented by counsel who aren't attending the hearing and their counsel are going on their behalf. So interesting enough, in Alberta, if you do an in-person hearing, you have to bring your client. Really? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So they have to be there in person. They don't have to testify, like they're not obligated to give evidence, but they have to be there. So and, we tried to do one just because they want, the, the client was like, I think it'll be more persuasive if they have oral arguments instead of written arguments. And I was like, all right, sounds good. We'll go book your day off work. And then he very quickly changed his mind because he already doesn't have a license. He had to get a different job with a pay cut because he didn't have ability to drive around. Now he's got to book the day off, find a way to get to the middle of nowhere in Southern Calgary and hang out there for the day. So it's like, it's just really, really inconvenient and I guess I get that it's not meant to be like a convenient process for them but it just makes everything really stacked against them nothing's really going in their favor which is ridiculous because at this point in time they are still accused the only reason they're in this position is because they're accused but in the administrative regime like there's no benefit goes their way the oral hearings um is there cross-examination ever done by counsel for the registrar so I've Never seen counsel for the registrar do any cross-examination. I've had members of the board ask questions, like clarifying questions or things that they want to know about. Um, and there isn't really any administrative process to stop them from asking the question because they have conduct over their panel hearing. But that's definitely one of the reasons why I've shied away from doing the oral appeals. Um, 
one, because it's just really a lot easier to show people what the law actually is in writing and you send them authorities because I had one file where I, I was in front of them and I literally had an argument with the head of the panel for about 15 minutes the whole time I was there because she was misstating the criminal code sections. And I was like, that's not what the code says. I mean, I didn't bring it because this isn't a criminal court, but like you're wrong. And I didn't re- like, it's hard to say that to an adjudicator, right? Because you want them to be on your side and standing up and being like, actually you're incorrect. They tend to get a little antsy about that, but it was like literally a 15 minute process where this lady's like, I know what the code is. And I was like, man, this is all I do. Like I'm actually a lawyer who practices my entire practice is in that book. And I'm telling you that what you're saying is wrong. And it was just a really, really antagonistic environment that doesn't really go in your client's favor. And I've had that experience, and I know some other people that have had just those kind of back and forth with people who don't really practice this area, but that's what they think they're, that's what they think the rules are. And, and are they the, get very upset if you disagree. Are the oral hearings then like only in Calgary and Edmonton? I know all of Southern Alberta's are based in Calgary. Because I've done some out of circuit jurisdictions that still get sent here. And I know we had one matter from Grand Prairie that was heard in Edmonton. So they may have expanded sites, but on the last time I did an oral hearing, that's where they're scheduled. So the people in Alberta who most need to drive are the people who are living out in the rural areas. You got, you know, Joe Blow in Consort, Alberta is not going to be able to access the registry, not going to be be able to get his interlock put in, not being able to attend his oral hearing, uh, and yet still expected to serve all of this driving prohibition. Yeah, and I mean, it's really frustrating because the, the, legis- the legislature should obviously know, right? They should obviously know that a huge portion of Albertans do not live in urban centers. And what the system was before the immediate suspension came in is you used to lose your license for about three or for 24 hours. And then you had a period of time to like get things in order. And then a 30 day suspension came into play. And then after 30 days, it was 90 days, like they eventually made it more severe. But because they knew that some people like couldn't get home or couldn't deal with their jobs or couldn't deal with anything, they had like a, I think it was 21 days, actually, they had a 21 day period, a three week period to like kind of get their life in order to deal with the fact that they weren't going to have their license for 90 days. Right. Or run around and purchase your forms. Yeah. Just get these things done so you can actually have an opportunity to do them without calling your mom or your girlfriend or whoever else has a vehicle and is actually going to be able to drive. Keep it in mind that for the first three days, your vehicle is impounded anyway. So So what was their rationale for changing it then? Honestly, they just wanted to make it more severe. So before this current regime came into place with a 90-day and the 12 months, what it used to be is your license was suspended indefinitely until trial. And that was only overturned last year. So that would mean, like, as soon as you were arrested, your car is impounded for three days, you have no license, and you don't have a license until you go to trial and either are successful or you are not. And then, as I understand, it was overturned because it was essentially assuming that everybody's guilty and it was pushing people into pleading guilty because they'd terminate their suspensions sooner and it was imposing a bail condition when the province didn't have the right to do it. Am I articulating that at all correctly? Yeah, I mean, you're pretty much on point. I mean, the biggest problem from my reading of of the Court of Appeal decision, the biggest problem that they had 
is the province is like, it's not criminal, it's administrative, but everything about it was attached to the criminal charges. When it started was because of the criminal charges. When it ended was because of the criminal charges. It basically mimicked the suspension you were going to get as a result of being convicted of the criminal charge. And because it was so closely tied to the charges themselves, they, they were like, that's not, that's not administrative. Like you're just trying to add on some sort of a punishment for these criminal offenses because if that wasn't the case then they wouldn't just go away as soon as you're acquitted. So is it is it possible now to get one of the AALS suspensions without being charged criminally? How it's drafted it's possible and it's one of the things that um, I mean a lot of defense lawyers I think were considering when it first came in because how the Transportation Safety Act reads is essentially once an officer has reasonable and probable grounds to believe that you're operating in motor vehicle while impaired or well over the legal limit or if you've refused to provide a sample, once that's done, they can issue the the notice of suspension. In practice, the only times we've seen a notice of suspension being served without charges is for some drug offenses um, because they have to send away a sample before they can confirm whether there's anything present. So they'll give them the ALS suspension, but they won't formally charge them or in the cases of some accident where they've formed that opinion, but because they want to wait and see what the evidence is, they'll give the ALS suspension, but they won't actually charge them until the blood work comes back. Okay, so sort of the panic that there was that this was going to replace the criminal prosecutions and end the, you know, area of defense of impaired driving that many practitioners focus on, you know, <laughs> as you yeah. and I know, <laughs> not a not a big uh, not a, a big reality in the end. It wasn't a big reality in the end, and I I mean I didn't have I know that there was a lot of uh, conversations between uh, the bar and the people who are drafting these bills and um, people in government, things like that. I wasn't really involved in a lot of that. But yeah, the huge panic where everyone was like, we're going to need to find another area of law to practice. We need to build a challenge for this. We have to do this. We have to do that. That didn't really come through. Now, has anyone challenged this version of the legislation since they brought it in? Not as far as I know. So it came into effect on April of last year. And so far, it hasn't really went anywhere because most people... I mean, honestly, if you've already went 90 days without your license and you're trying to get a job, raise your kids, do things like that, they just want their license back sooner rather than later. And the person who basically starts that is the test case for that. They would have to kind of almost give up that right. So we haven't had anybody who's done that yet. Now, I also understand that there's been a number of decisions recently out of Alberta dealing specifically with the ultimate penalty that you get in the criminal case and the impact of your ALS suspension. Um, so what I've read is that if you serve your your 90-day suspension, that that time actually gets taken off the one-year suspension under the code. So what they've done, particularly for the people who were under the old regime, so the regime that was just you're suspended indefinitely, is they've, the defense bar kind of argued that it should be comparable to a very strict bail condition, and so they should get some credit for it. So it's not even just the 90 days. So if some people ended up walking for like six or seven months just because of by virtue of their offense date, they weren't before the, they were charged before the amendments came in. Then there's some judges who are giving seven months credit towards the 12 month driving prohibition. And what that does in effect 
in effect, all it really does is it gives them the opportunity to get the blow box sooner. Because prior to the criminal code amendments in December of 2018, there was a there was like a 90 day period where you had to walk again. So even if you had the blow box in your car while you were waiting for trial, and then you're convicted at trial, you would have to take the blow box out, or give up your license again, walk for another 90 days, and then reapply for the interlock program. And it was causing a lot of grief, obviously. So what the judges have done is they've given credit for however much time you've walked and that comes off the front of your prohibition. And what it does in essence is it means you can go apply for the blow box immediately instead of having to wait those 90 days. In practice, that's really the only benefit you get because once you're convicted of an impaired, regardless of what your driving prohibition from the court is, the Traffic Safety Act has a 12-month prohibition that starts the day that you're found guilty. And the nine-month credit that the court gives you towards your criminal prohibition doesn't have any impact on that 12 months. Really? And has anybody challenged that connection? Not as far as I know. I mean, it's still relatively new right now because Alberta's also got a policy that once you have been convicted, you have to have the blow box for 12 months from the date of your conviction. So even if you challenge whether or not you got that credit, you're still not going to get your full license back until you've had a blow box in your vehicle for 12 months and you have to log 100 kilometers minimum per month on that blow box. Wow. So you, you basically, you're forced to drive. If you're only an occasional to and from the grocery store driver, you're forced to just drive around aimlessly with a blow box in your car. That's what their policy is right now. I mean, I, I, I haven't had anybody come to me and ask to fight that. So I don't know. Like you've pointed out, most people in Alberta are driving. I mean, if you drive across Calgary five times, you're going to drive 100 kilometers in a month because it's so spread out. But um there's some circumstances where you can apply to driver fitness and monitoring to say, look, look, this is where I live. This is where I work. There's no way I'm going to have 100 kilometers. And they might give you leeway, but I've never seen anything like that. Okay. I just think of like, I have a, an aunt that lives in Forestburg and, you know, she's in her 80s and she goes to the grocery store and she goes home and she's not getting 100 kilometers in a month. Yeah. Like, I live about eight blocks from work, and I drive to work because I have a small dog that comes to work with me every day. But that's the majority of the driving I do is, like, to work and back home and to work and back home. And in a month, I might log, like, 30 kilometers, so, maybe. So don't get a blow box condition. <laughs> yeah, definitely I, not for me. Yeah. I think I'd have bigger problems if I ended up with one of those. I was going to say, sure. probably the consequences of, of an interlock and having to keep up with the 100 kilometers would be the least of your yeah. worries at that point definitely. as a lawyer. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you mentioned these 30 days or sorry, three months and then the blow box. And that was the issue prior to the changes that came into effect in December. How does the new changes under C46 impact any of that? So the new changes under C46 basically mean that if the judge tells you that you can go get the blow box immediately, then the Alberta government isn't requiring a 90-day walking period. But honestly, there's been two or three lawyers from our office who's called Driver Fitness and Monitoring to try to get a clear answer of how things work, and we haven't gotten the most concise answer. And then we've had some clients who've gotten like three or four different letters in the mail. Like One client got three letters in the mail, and all of them gave him different dates, different suspension dates, different reinstatement conditions. So it's really just an disorganized mess right now. I think it's going to take some time even for the registry to sort out how the impacts are changing. But from my conversation with the Transportation Safety Board, um, what they said is if you get convicted and the judge says that you're eligible to apply for the blow box immediately, 
then you can go file your application and start the process of getting into the mandatory program. And I, I'm just going to back up for a minute because there's two different ways you can get the interlock. You can get the interlock under the administrative license suspension plan, which is a voluntary option. You can either walk the 12 months or you can choose to go get the blow box for a portion of it. But if you have the blow box in your car and then you get convicted, you are automatically revoked or removed from the optional program and you have to apply to the mandatory program. So even though you've already been approved once and the blow box in your car and you have a restricted license and you're paying all the fees, as soon as you're convicted, you can't drive anymore. You have to start the process all over again. So even though you have the court saying you can go get a blow box right away and in your head you're like, oh, I've already got one, no problem, you still can't drive. You have to go through the whole process of applying. So you have to go so, back and buy another form and yep. do you have, you have to, to go, go get another form? You have to, you don't have to take the blow box out, okay. but you have to pay the reinstatement fee again. You have to pay the application fee again, and you have to pay for your restricted driver's license again. And they're all different fees. So it's all just a profit deal. It really seems that way. And the sucky thing is like, if you get convicted, before you can formally apply for the Ignition Interlock program, it has to be the only reinstatement condition left on your abstract. Sorry, I'll correct myself. The only conditions can be your reinstatement fee, which is $200, and your Ignition Interlock requirement. So well, everything else, you're driving ahead course because everyone has to take one if they've been convicted. Any fees you have, uh, your court fee, all of those have to be pay- paid before you can apply to get into the mandatory program. So even though they say you can apply immediately, I mean, there's I think there's about a four to six week waiting period to get into those courses right now. So if you come out of court, the judge says you can immediately install uh, an interlock in your car and you're sentenced to a $2,000 fine because it was a refusal case and you um, are granted a year time to pay because you're low income. You still have to wait until you've paid that $2,000 before you can put the interlock in? That's not, that's basically what our clients have been told. So when they go there, the reinstatement conditions are like your fee, your reinstatement, or your fine, your reinstatement fee, your planning ahead course, and potentially a road test. And what is this planning ahead course? What does that look like? So in Alberta, there's two different courses. There's a planning ahead course. It's a one-day course that every first-time first-time offender has to take. So if it's your first impaired driving or over 80 or refusal case, then you have to take this course. I think it's about, I can't remember the price. It's a couple hundred dollars. It's usually offered through AMA, and it's a one-day course. And it's a requirement for you to get your restricted license. And do they offer those just in Calgary and Edmonton, or are they offered all over? Mm, They have a lot more courses in Calgary and Edmonton, but they're offered in most major centers. Okay. So So I think there's, there's one in Grand Prairie. I think you can take it in Red Deer, Medicine Hat, Lightminster Leopard, things like that. Okay, so at least it's a little bit more accessible than everything else. Yeah, I don't think it's just in the two cities, because I know for sure you can take it in Grand Prairie. Okay, and you said there's a four to six week waiting period just to get into the course? The last time I called to help one of my clients get registered for it, because they were having a hard time, it was four to six weeks out. That's the dates that they were giving me. For the course, do they, like, offer any accommodations for people who have, like, language difficulties or anything like that? Or is it you've got to figure that out on your own? I mean, I've never had any, I've never had anybody call with an issue like that. Generally speaking, most Alberta government services are offered in whatever language that you 
need, but I mean, I know they're hosted by one person. So like there's one course every week or so. And then when you go through, um, it's just hosted by somebody who I'm presuming is speaking predominantly English, potentially French. But I mean, if you don't fit into those categories, then I think it's something you have to arrange. And what about like, do you, how do you prove that you completed it? Is it just you get your name on an attendance list or is there a quiz? Um, they give you a certificate at the end saying that you've completed the one day driving course and then you have to jog along and take that to the registry. <laughs> and since it is offered through AMA, AMA offers registry services in Alberta. So normally they'll upload it into your system. Okay. So I'm just trying to like do the math on this. Assuming you get charged with impaired driving and you're convicted and you get the ALS suspension and you dispute it, how many separate registry visits are required? So if you if you dispute the ALS, you actually file the appeal, you'll have to go to the registry and purchase the appeal form. And then once you've purchased that appeal form and signed the bottom, the rest of it can be filled out by your counsel. If you lose, then you have to go back and get an ignition interlock device form. So you'll have to pay for that. And then once you're done that, you have to go get the blow box installed. Then you gotta go back to the registry to apply for your restricted license fee. All right, and so then on the criminal three. charge, you'll have another registry visit at the end of your, if you're convicted. Yeah, so on the criminal charge, if you're convicted, you'll have to go to the registry um, that's where you'll pay your reinstatement fee and you'll get another application form. And then once you get the application form, you will still have to get that application form signed by somebody saying that the blow box is installed in your vehicle still before you can take it back to the registry and get your restricted license. And then finally, your, your um, course completion. Yeah, so the course completion, you'll have to take that to the registry with you as well. So six separate potentially six separate visits in the course of one impaired driving case. Without a license, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, and each one of those costs people money. Yeah. Okay, well, that's um, a very it's, interesting system you guys have over it's there. It's insane. Wow. Um, if you could change it, what would you change? I mean, if... I could change it myself. I think if they're going to suspend somebody's license while their charges are pending, I agree with the way that they had it before where you had a period where you could still have your license and you could sort things out and then they, they lose your license. Because the biggest problem that a lot of people have right now is it's immediate. They have to call their boss the next day and say, I can't come to work. I can't operate a motor vehicle at work. And most employers, particularly in this economy, are like, well, then you're fired. Like, we can't do anything with you. We don't have time to rearrange for it. You're not going to be at work where we need you right now. And at least at the 21 days, you have a chance to, like, get things organized. So you're not entirely screwed over. I mean, at this point, you are screwed. If you work in the oil industry, you're screwed. If you work outside of the, any urban center, you're, you're just hooped. You can't do anything, right? But at least that way, you had a chance to sort of organize things one way or the other. With the blow box, I mean, I don't think there's any system that's going to be put in place where the blow box isn't going to be incorporated somehow because it's supposed to deter people from drinking and driving and sort of put a permanent association in there. But I would change it back to where they didn't have to do that be before. I don't think we've seen a decline in impaired driving charges since we went from the 90-day suspension and then just get your license back than we have to now. We might have seen an increase in guilty pleas, but that doesn't mean you're stopping the action. It just means you're making more money and more people are walking around criminal records right now.
That's all it means. I mean, in terms of like how much harm it's doing to people in the province, I don't think I don't think this regime is helping anybody. And as far as like more, you say more people walking around with criminal records, what do you think about the other change that came in with C-46, eliminating the opportunity to ask for a curative discharge? I mean, there's so many things wrong with C-46, but I think that's pretty (laughs) high up on my list of issues because the whole thing, curatives aren't easy. And I tell judges all the time in my submissions that applying for a curative is not an easy out. It is a lot easier to pay a $1,000 fine and get a blow box for 12 months than it is to go through intensive treatment. And so getting rid of the curative when you have somebody before you who's admitting to having an addiction issue or who's admitted to having a dependency issue such that it's basically led them to be in the circumstance that they're in and they're willing to put in all the work to make sure that they can overcome that underlying issue and you're still not going to give them any benefit other than they don't have to pay the minimum fine. It's just ridiculous. And again, if you have somebody who can demonstrate that they have that dependency or they have that addiction, then I personally think it lowers their criminal culpability. Like they're, they're an addict. We right. have situations set up for people who have drug addictions all over the place. And alcohol addictions have been known for years longer and they've been studied extensively. It, it's clear that it's just as much a disease as, as any other type of addiction, but they, I mean, this just basically gets rid of it. And again, there's just no studies that any of these governments have that show any of these changes are going to deter people from making this decision. So it it just doesn't make any sense to me. I completely disagree with that. Right. I mean, we have drug treatment court and you can you can go and you can participate in the program and avoid a jail sentence if you do that. But you can do all of the things right if you have an alcohol yeah. addiction and have the same outcome as the guy who says, you know, fuck it. I drink and drive all the time and I don't care. Yeah. I mean, it's just. Yeah, that's basically it. And I just don't see any incentives. Now you have people who. I mean, maybe they would have been willing to come in and say, you know, I have this drinking problem, I have this issue, and I'm willing to go through this treatment. But at this point, maybe they'll be like, you know what, I'll take the 20 days in jail, because that's going to be a lot easier than going through all of this to still just have more conditions put on me. It doesn't make any sense. I don't think it gives any incentive where it's necessary. All right. Anything else you want to share about your knowledge of the Alberta licensing suspension or specific Alberta changes after C-46? Mm, the only thing I'd comment on is one of the files that we've recently had is because of the changes to the Transportation Safety Act or the Traffic Safety Act is even if you refuse a mandatory screening device, which obviously tons of constitutional challenges are definitely going to flow from this, mm-hmm. but they've actually included that demand in their process. So even if you refuse a mandatory screening device and there's no evidence of indicia anywhere, you're still going to be subject to the suspension. And the interlock. And there's and the interlock, and there's really no way around it at the provincial level right now, unless you have somebody who's going to be in a position to challenge it. Do you anticipate a provincial challenge to the Transportation Safety Act on the basis of that suspension flowing from that charge? I don't know. I don't know because I think the timeline is going to be, I think it's going to be a faster timeline in criminal court than it is at the Transportation Safety Board level. So I honestly think most people might just wait to see what happens with the criminal charge because obviously if that portion of the code gets struck down as unconstitutional, then whatever impact it has from the Traffic Safety Act is going to be gone as well. 
So I'm not sure that anyone's going to run them separately. And obviously out of the one that's quote unquote more important, it's probably going to be from the criminal code. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. That makes perfect sense. I think that's it. Yeah. Thank we you. covered the majority of it. Overall, I think it's a really crappy regime that we're dealing with right now. Um, yeah. It actually makes me feel fond about our British Columbia regime, and I never thought I'd feel that way. Well, I'm happy I made your day happier. <laughs> I'll tell all my clients, you just be glad you're not in Alberta. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. How can people reach you if they have a charge in Alberta, either driving related or otherwise, or questions about this law and how it impacts them? Um, they can reach our office by email. So we have an email that's yyccriminaldefense at gmail.com. Okay. Or if they just go online, they can call me on my cell or on our office number and pick up basically 24-7. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. That's Caitlin Perrin from YYC Criminal Defense. And uh, she is, from my opinion, an expert uh, in this Alberta area of law. So thank you very much for joining me, Caitlin. And I look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Well, thank you for the invite. It was great. Thank you again to Caitlin Perrin of YYC Criminal Defense in Calgary. Uh, she is an expert resource for anything related to impaired driving or driving law, and anyone who has an issue should absolutely reach out to Caitlin and get her assistance. As she said on the podcast, it's 50% of her life is just dealing with the roadside suspensions in Alberta, which makes her somebody who has such a wide breadth and depth of of knowledge that you are missing out if you are not getting in touch with her. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Tune in next week when we talk with Dr. Scott McDonald, author of the new book, Cannabis Crashes, Myths and Truths. He is going to talk about the research that he did and the research that he reviewed and some of the myths and truths around cannabis impairment and driving. Uh, must listen for anybody in the cannabis impaired driving sphere. 